Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we read of the first sign of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who manifested to us that he came into the world to begin the fulfillment of the age to come. Help us to live with our eyes ever focused on this, that we might live lives that are dedicated to you in each and everything that we do. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Good morning, and please be seated. I have this re- recurring anxiety dream. You know the type of dream that I'm talking about? Kind of the, the, pop, the common one that I've heard a lot of people talk about, and for some reason I never had, but that's neither here nor there, is the one where you're in college and you dream that you have a class that you've You've never actually been to the class, but then it's finals week, and you realize, oh, I need to go take this final, and you've, you've never been to the class, you've never studied for it, and then you wake up. <clears throat> you, you probably know that dream, or at least you've heard of somebody talking about that dream. That's not my anxiety dream. My recurring anxiety dream is that I'm woefully unprepared for Sunday morning, <laughs> which may or may not be true most Sunday mornings. No, I'm mostly, mostly joking, but... <clears throat> You know, I, I show up and I can't find my cassock. I run around. I finally find my cassock. Can't find my surplus. I run around. I finally find that. And, and then as, as this is going on and as more and more things seem to go wrong and I'm looking and looking, more and more people come. You know, we have 10 visitors, then 20 visitors, and 30 visitors. And by the time I'm about ready to start and Elizabeth's about ready to start playing the, the opening hymn, it's 10.30 and I wake up. Part of what what this dream is is just a a fear of not being prepared. But I think the deeper, more deep-seated fear is here is not to show hospitality, especially to those who are visiting. This fear of people come and and then they don't feel welcomed or don't feel like this is a good place to be to worship our Lord. And they don't feel welcomed, therefore. This morning, as we, we read about Jesus And at least four of his disciples, they travel to this marriage feast in Cana. And in order to really understand what's going on at this marriage feast, it'd be this massive, massive party where where everybody, all the friends would come and just rejoice in this new marriage. And if you want to think about it, don't don't think about like our weddings. You know, we have an hour or so long service and then we go and we have a a big party that is very expensive. Anyway, we know about such things. Think about it as a week-long party, like a a music festival that just keeps going and going and going. Or perhaps if you want to think locally, like our Christmas celebrations here, where it just seems like there's one more thing after another in our Christmas celebrations here in Prescott, or or rodeo days, perhaps, which which last several days in a row. But then it would be condensed to celebrate one thing, which is the marriage of these people. And at the same time, there'd be this pressure to show hospitality to those people, a pressure that it would be a great party, there'd be lots of food, lots of wine, lots of merriment to be had. You can imagine the cost of such a party. The cost would be massive for the groom and his family, unlike ours where often the the bride, thank you for filling the blank in, pays for the, or the bride's family pays for the marriage. It would have been the groom's family that would have paid for this or this 
massive party. And like all parties, any party that you throw, there's, there's this pressure, this social pressure in it. And, and, <clears throat> and there, there'd be this desire to make it be a great thing. And one of the things that's, that's really interesting, that's just an aside about this passage, the fact that our Lord's first miracle is a miracle at a, a wedding feast tells us something about how the Lord feel, fe- feels about marriage. And that is that marriage is something worth being celebrated vigorously. But back to the social implications, in particularly the social implica- implications of running out of wine. One of our favorite sitcoms is The Office. If you've not seen it, it's a good, it's a good show, and it's reasonably wholesome for a modern sitcom. <clears throat> but there's, there's one episode where the boss invites a few of the employees over for a dinner party, and it's one of the more awkward episodes. If you, so at least one of you knows what episode I'm talking about. But one of the things that happens in this episode is about partway through, they realize there's no food yet. And finally, they're like, well, when is dinner going to be? And, and the host and, and his, his girlfriend or whatever she is, is like, well, it'll be in four hours when I'm done cooking. <laughs> and of course, things just continue to devolve from there. But imagine, if you will, if you go over to somebody's house and you've, you have to wait four hours to cook. I've, I've gone over to plenty of people's houses, and they've miscalculated, and it's like half an hour. Four hours is not a miscalculation. That's a very intentional, maybe hostage situation. <clears throat> but it would be that same feeling of kind of being let down by your host. All of a sudden, you're like, well, this is kind of a, a bummer. Like, we were going to have a great time, enjoy a good meal with our friends, and now there's no food, and they, they seem to be intentionally not feeding us. And this is about the bomb which, which Mary, Jesus' mother, is about to drop. And she comes up to him and says, they have no wine. The guests will be upset with the groom and his family, who will be embarrassed by this when this, this comes to light. How could they have planned so poorly? It's likely, as we read on, that Mary and Jesus are somehow related or at least friends with the bridegroom because Mary seems to, one, really care about the fact that they have no wine. She's not like, well, let's get out of here. She's like, you've got to do something. But the other part is, as we read on, you'll notice that she has sway with the servants. And so she probably has some sort of vested interest in helping the bridegroom save face here. But Jesus' response is shocking. And we're allowed to be shocked by this. He responds, woman, what does this have to do with me? The woman part is the part that probably often troubles us because if you know, if somebody's like woman, we imagine somebody in like a wife beater or something like that about to really be unkind to his wife. But that's not, that's not what's going on here. This is, we see again Jesus call his mother woman on the cross when he tells Mary, take, he says, woman, take this man as your, your son, where she, he basically has Mary adopt John the evangelist, John the writer of our gospel. And so woman isn't the part that should trouble us. It's the what does this have to do with me? And if we look up this phrase throughout scripture, it's only ever used as a rebuke. And so the question lies, why is he rebuking his mother 
Why is he rebuking his mother for just having wanting her, for her wanting him to help? <clears throat> he continues, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come, or, or in our more colloquial, my time has not yet come. It's like going back to that awkward dinner party. The time to eat the dinner has not yet come. It's, it's not yet here. <clears throat> and this theme of his hour not yet coming and coming comes up seven more times throughout St. John's Gospel. In 7.30 and 8.20, it comes up as, again, his hour not yet coming, but in this case, he's teaching, and he, he ticks off or makes mad just the wrong people. And, and, they, <clears throat> and they seek to arrest him because they're just so mad at him, they want him to be quiet. And he gets away, and, and it says both of these times, his hour has not yet come. And so this starts to give us a hint at where we're going with his hour coming. The latter five ones give us our answer as, as a shift happens. The next one comes in 1223 when he says, finally, my hour has come. And this happens after John's account of the triumphal entry. This <coughs> happens between the triumphal entry and, and the last supper. And so that's when his hour has finally come. The last five statements about Jesus' hour coming points to his glory being in his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. His hour had not yet come because it was not yet time for that to be experienced. And as we explore this passage, we learn that it does not point us towards the miracle of turning water into wine, but the centrality of what Christ's ministry is. And that is his death resurrection, and exaltation. It points to the ushering in of the kingdom of heaven. Mary is not phased by Jesus' rebuke, as any good mother might be, but trusts that he will do what needs to be done. And she says to the servants, do whatever he, <coughs> whatever he tells you to do. Now before we dive on to what is going on here, we can take note and be inspired by Mary's own faith. It's often unclear what the Lord is doing. But that does not mean that he's idle. That does not mean, but it rather, this can remind us of his good providence. He is at work when we pray. We can petition him and feel silence and wonder, well, what is he doing here? But nonetheless, he is working in his timeline to his glory so be like Mary and walk in the faith of this. Now, we learn that there are six stone jars for the purification ceremony. <coughs> Excuse me, I got a little tickle. <laughs> so the six stone jars for the purification ceremony. This would have been part of washing to make oneself clean and purifying oneself before or perhaps after this big celebration. And we learn something even more important about the, these stone jars. They're, they're massive, and they would have held 20 to 30 gallons of water apiece. And Jesus tells the servants to fill these, these water jars to the brim and then draw the water and take it to the st steward. <clears throat> This would have likely have been a very labor-intensive process. Somebody during staff Bible study asked, 
well, well, how would they move these stone jars around? And they wouldn't have moved them around. They would have gone and got to the town wall, well, rather, and gotten a bucket and filled it up and run it back. And so we can imagine this taking a little bit of time, but then they scoop the water out and bring it to the, stu- to the steward who didn't taste it. We sometimes get lost on, like, well, when is the timing? Like, when does he turn the water into wine? And that's really not important in this question of what's going on. <clears throat> but as we read about it, the steward is shocked as we read. Right? Every man, he says, sets the good wine out first, and then he serves the, the less good wine. But this, this wine that I'm tasting now is the good wine. This wine was the best wine that he had tasted at the whole festival or the whole party. And as we read this, this can be really shocking to us. As Americans, we have a, a weird, uh, American Christians specifically, a weird relationship with alcohol. Could Jesus have really supplied, we might wonder, the best wine for a marriage feast, as, it, as apparently the marriage feast is already well on its way. But as we mentioned, first and foremost, marriage is worth celebrating. And the fact that he provided the wine isn't the scandal of this, of this miracle. The scandal is this. The miracle displayed that Jesus can provide in both quantity and quality. It's not just a bunch of three-buck chuck from Trader Joe's to be kind of crude. He didn't give his, give his disciples a couple thousand dollars to run down, and which that, I did the math this morning. That's roughly about how much this three-buck chuck would cost. It would be 1800 to $2,000. <clears throat> But what he provided was 600 to 900 bottles of top-shelf wine, the finest wine money could buy. Now, if you're an inquisitive person, as I sometimes am, you might be wondering why this is the first miracle that John presents of Jesus. Why of all the miracles that Jesus does, is this the first one? Wouldn't it have been better to show him healing a paralytic or, or, or feeding 5,000 or something like this? No, he, he brings the best wine to a friend's party. Three times in the prophets that, that speak of Jesus coming, they talk about how the new wine will overflow. They talk about how in the age of fulfillment, the new wine will be in plenty. In other words, in the age when all will finally be made right, in the age that's ushered in by the Messiah, in the age when the kingdom comes, there will be good wine in plenty. The turning of water into wine isn't about a party being saved, although it is. The turning of water into wine isn't about grace to a specific group of people, although grace is shown. It isn't about helping someone be saved from embarrassment, though they are. The first sign, which we read of this morning, is about the revealing of the age of fulfillment, that that age is coming into being. Though it was not yet to be revealed, as Jesus tells his mother, but it it is coming into being. The turning of water into wine is about the coming of eternity. 
Now let's pause for just a moment to think about the way miracles worked. I very much like to ask trick questions in staff Bible study, and I asked, well, is this a natural or not natural? And I was very intentional about not natural, not supernatural. Is this a natural or not natural miracle that we've seen? And and the answer that we kind of automatically pop to is, well, it's not natural. Water doesn't just become wine. But water does become wine, if you slow down and think about it. There's vineyards here and there in Arizona, and of course, California is famous for them. But one of the key ingredients for a vineyard is water. You go out, you water the vine, the vine grows, the grapes grow on the vine. You pick the grapes, you crush the grapes and make juice, and the juice is fermented. And of course, for good wine like this, it takes years for it to be perfected and then provided out of. But water becomes wine every day. But the slow process is much, much slower than it is. The miracles that we see so often in the New Testament are simply natural processes sped up. And this isn't to reduce the miracleness of the miracle. I don't think miracleness is actually a word, but <clears throat> but it's to help us to understand part of what miracles show us. This first sign that we read of Jesus performing in Cana of Galilee reveals many things. It reveals to us his natural predisposition to compassion. It reveals that he has authority over nature. But most importantly, as we mentioned already, it reveals to us that the age of fulfillment is coming and has come in Christ. The fact that it was the first miracle that we read about is important because it sets the tone for the rest of the signs which John writes out in his gospel. It sets the tone for John's whole gospel for us to understand what is going on. And that is the fact that the kingdom of heaven is coming to be. He has come to redeem his people. He has come to redeem you and make you citizens of that kingdom. Over the next six weeks, I want to look at the other six signs that John uses and then have have one concluding sermon to talk about John's view of these signs and wonders which Jesus performs. Because Because John uses these to help us to understand who Jesus is. Next week, we'll look at John 4, 43 through 54, as he heals the royal official's son. And as we examine these miracles, I hope, that, <clears throat> I hope and pray that you will be like his disciples, that you, will, that you will see his glory manifested, and that you will believe all the more in him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost.